The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. And this is an earlier than anticipated episode for the sad reason that the Duke of Edinburgh has died. A fascinating man in so many respects, and from a religious point of view, interesting because he was born baptised into the Greek Orthodox Church, though he later left it to become an Anglican when he married the Queen. He was the grandson of a King of Greece, didn't have a drop of Greek blood in his veins. He belonged to the House of Glücksburg, the House of Schleswig-Holstein-Sonderburg-Glücksburg, which has supplied Europe with many a monarch, including the Queen of Denmark, the King of Norway, and, of course, the Greek royal family. I was always very impressed by Prince Philip and thought he was hugely underrated intellectually because of his deliberately bluff and laconic manner. He did take a strong interest in Christianity because we know that in the early 1980s he engaged in some dialogues with the then Dean of Windsor, Michael Mann. And in later years, one heard from time to time that he was rediscovering his Orthodox faith, which would be a slightly odd thing for him to do, given that, as far as I can work out, he was never really reared in the Orthodox faith. The Glücksbergs, like a number of other royal families, had to convert to Orthodoxy in order to get the crown, which must have been a bit of a culture shock, I think, for Lutherans from the German... Danish border. But it raises all sorts of questions about the appeal of orthodoxy, not just to Prince Philip, but apparently to the Prince of Wales as well. I remember being very, very struck at the funeral of Diana, Princess of Wales, when Charles crossed himself in the orthodox manner, which is, well, first of all, crossing yourself is a very unusual thing for a member of the British royal family to do. And secondly, the orthodox manner is in the other direction from Catholics and actually looks quite different. Who better with whom to discuss these topics than a former chaplain to the Queen? My regular interlocutor, Dr Gavin Ashenden. Gavin, I've been rather dreading this moment of Prince Philip dying because I found him a very appealing figure. I remember once turning on the radio and listening to somebody talking about British design with such expertise that I assumed it was a leading British designer, but in fact it was the Duke of Edinburgh. Obviously we knew he was ill. Obviously there was always a big question mark over whether he'd make his... 100th birthday. I actually found myself feeling so sad about it that I've slightly been ignoring the press coverage because I don't want to constantly be reminded of this extraordinary person that we've lost and of course the Queen has lost. Gavin, you must have met the Duke of Edinburgh on a number of occasions because, well, perhaps you could just explain to us, chaplain to the Queen, you're no longer an Anglican, so you're no longer a chaplain to Her Majesty, but what does it actually mean? Yes, I did meet Prince Philip on a number of occasions and uh, I was glad as so many of the hundreds of thousands of people who met him to talk to him. He was uh, always witty, uh, sharp, and uh, on the case at every point. I, I met him before I became a chaplain of the Queen when he came to our university doing one of his, his normal tours of the great and the good. Um, and I met him more often when I was at Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle as part of the Royal Ecclesiastical Household. The Royal Ecclesiastical Household is, is a very strange thing. I think it probably sums up some of the constitutional, I don't want to pass flummery is not the right word, but the, the, the intricate, multi-layered 
historical and cultural layers of state that wrap themselves around the monarchy, um, which meant something once upon a time, but have stopped meaning anything really in particular. Did you know, for example, that that the, the Queen, when Prince Philip married her, received a footman arrived every night at bedtime with a bottle of whiskey and put it on her bedside table. And when Prince Philip asked, why is this? It was because sometime before, uh, Queen Victoria had, got, had a cough. And so she'd asked for a bottle of whiskey. And the order to bring the whiskey to mend the cough had never been rescinded. No one had ever thought to do it. <laughs> so Philip said, well... This, of course, is Queen Victoria who used to pour a shot of whiskey into her claret <laughs> to the horror of her fellow dinner guests. So, so Prince Philip said, well, it's time someone did think to rescind it. We'll, we'll start now. That summed up, I think, one of the gifts he brought to the royal family. Um, he brought thought and method and competence and, and constructive interrogation. But the Royal Ecclesiastical Household is something that goes back a very long way. The first time we hear about it is at the Battle of Agincourt, where uh, on the back of a baggage train, one of the chaplains effectively wrote his blog uh, and described something of the battle to us. Uh, and it effectively uh, is a Catholic institution in order to provide mass priests to go round with the royal household as it makes its various processions. But no one thought to, re to reconfigure it as the centuries went on. And so it has ended up as being 36 Anglican clergy um, who are based at St. James's Palace. And they, they go to the chapel there once a year, each of them, to deliver a sermon and provide ecclesiastical stuffing for for events that take place at the, at the palace and at, at, at Windsor Castle. Um, now, it, like so many things, although it's an artifice, great good can come from it because it allows for personal relationships to be developed of a confidential and, and constructive kind. So it's not a bad thing. It's just a, a cosmetic and rather pointless thing. Um, but then the monarchy has lots of those things attached to it. And one of Philip's roles was to go through them like a hot knife through butter and try and get rid of the more useless ones. You said that clergy in the household are based at St James's Palace. Does that mean you were based at St James's Palace? Or that you just visited it? Well, by based at, um, so there is a, there is a sub-dean at, uh, at St James's Palace who effectively runs the joint. And then each one of the 36 royal chaplains comes in and has their, their week during the year where they preach. And they preach to a congregation made up of uh, ambassadors, ladies-in-waiting, hangers-on, hardly ever the Queen and uh, Prince Philip, because if they can, they, they, they want to get out of London at the weekend. And so they're either doing official duties or, or they go to Sandringham. Um, so they're not there very often. I'm, I'm afraid the truth is that, that although one's called a royal chaplain, the, the royalty don't avail themselves of your services very much. Well, of course, no self-respecting member of the British upper classes, and the royal family are very much that these days, would dream of being in London at the well, weekend. Well, it's gone. Not quite, exactly. <laughs> um, so I remember many years ago writing a cover story for The Spectator about the religion of the royal family, the private religious beliefs, insofar as one could discern them, of the Queen and the Prince of Wales. And I spoke to lots of people in the know. And it was very clear that the Queen shared the 
low church but not evangelical Anglican faith of her grandfather, George V, who of course was a huge influence on her, and that this was reflected in the way that ceremonies were conducted in the various royal households. So the Queen didn't like things at all high. She wasn't particularly keen on chasubles or incense. And I remember somebody telling me that when the General Synod was convened in 1970, Her Majesty was actually quite distressed that it began with a public service of the Eucharist rather than matins, which is what she preferred, though, of course, she does attend the Eucharist. I think she takes it four times a year and with enormous devotion. So, in a way, her theology of the Eucharist is actually higher than that of many Anglo-Catholics, you could argue. And what I discovered about the Prince of Wales at the time was that he didn't go to church every Sunday. That's fine. Although, perhaps a little bit odd, given that he's due to become supreme governor of that church. And that there was a mystical side to him, which was rather difficult to pin down. I think he was rather... I think he was rather more given to talking airy waffle back in 1991 or whenever it was than he is now. But it didn't really occur to me to look at the religious beliefs of Prince Philip. But it was shortly after that that various orthodox people started saying, oh, well, he's returning to his orthodox roots. Even a sort of conspiracy theory piece of counter-knowledge doing the round saying that he had become orthodox again, which certainly wasn't true. But we do know that the Duke of Edinburgh was very proud of his... Orthodox heritage, as indeed is his cousin, Prince Michael of Kent, who I know has very, very warm relations with the Russian Orthodox Church. He's descended from the Romanovs. And the Prince Philip was, I think I'm right in saying, and you will know better than I do, Gavin, a guardian of one of the shrines at Mount Athos? Yes, he was an, he was an honorary guardian or trustee, I think. Well, I, what strikes me is the culture clash here, because Orthodox Christianity in its various guises, bears very, very little relationship to the liturgy of the Church of England, which is far closer than that of Catholicism. And yet, I've noticed, for example, when I was religious first correspondent of the Telegraph, that many Anglicans, not necessarily friendly to Roman Catholicism, as they always called it, were very attracted to orthodoxy, and that the orthodox Anglican relationship was very important to lots of people. It was very important to the former Bishop of London, Richard Charters, great friend of the royal family, not a particular friend of Catholics in his diocese. I'm sorry to say, I'm not a fan. I wondered if you could explain to me a little bit about the attraction that Prince Philip might have felt, above and beyond the fact that he was baptised into the Orthodox faith, towards its traditions which seem so alien to Anglicanism, and it must have seemed so alien to his ancestors who were forced to convert to it. I think that was probably true up until the 1960s or 70s, but there are the two reasons for thinking that orthodoxy might have raised itself to, to be questioned and to be encountered. And the, the first is that through immigration mainly, but there are now something like half a million orthodox worshipping on a Sunday in the UK, and that, that makes them as big as the Church of England, perhaps bigger, depending on whose numbers you believe. Culturally and sociologically, orthodoxy has placed itself on the on the table, so to speak. But th- there's a more important reason, I think. And th- the first is that his, his mother, of course, although she didn't mother him very much and he was effectively and psychologically orphaned, she was a woman of extraordinary character who couldn't fail to influence people who knew her, and that must have been him. And so if I, if I can just talk about her a moment, because I think... Yes, this is Princess Alice, who became an Orthodox nun. So uh, Prince Charles will one day become the first British monarch whose grandmother was a nun, though not all her life, obviously. 
she was a very interesting nun. She she chain smoked and liked to play canasta. But if we if we allow for the fact that very often psychological characteristics jump generations from from grandparents, it's quite possible that Charles may have inherited his mystical streak from his Greek Orthodox grandmother, who went through a period in her life when she um, had profound religious experiences that her family didn't know how to deal with. So. They, she was also suffering from having had members of her family shot and her husband placed under a death sentence and having to become exiled. The, the, the stress the poor woman experienced as an early adult was, was just terrible. But she clearly had some mystical and spiritual sensitivity. And the pressure of the instability and the, the terrors of her life combined with this led her to some form of crisis. Um, whereupon her family had her sectioned and sent away, imprisoned in fact, in a psychiatric clinic in Switzerland, where Freud <laughs> came to examine her. And, and, and Freud's diagnosis was quite extraordinary. And he said that what she was suffering from, in fact, was a neurotic pre-psychotic libidinous condition. In other words, she was trying to suppress her sexuality and failing. And he recommended that her ovaries be uh, x-rayed in order to accelerate the menopause to free her from what he assumed was this sexual pressure cooker that she was. She protested and said this was all nonsense, that she was in fact sane, and it took her two years to escape from it. Now, the, the reason this is important is not just because it's an extraordinary story, but in, but in microcosm it, it exemplifies the great clash of the 20th century, which is Freudian wow. psychoanalysis, which, which was very, very incompetent when it turned its gaze towards religion, su supremely incompetent. Freud made up all his theories uh, out, out of fiction. A and genuine religious experience. And as these two things clashed, people didn't know what to do with them. So what are we going to say about uh, Philip's mother and Charles's grandmother? William James was very good at this. He, he remained an agnostic the whole of his life and was both a philosopher and a psychologist. And he said, well, the best thing we can do about religious experiences is to judge them by the, the ethical behaviour they, they give birth to. Now, the ethical behaviour for Princess Alice was that she started a, an order of nuns who became nurses, went to, going around doing the most enormous good. And she, she herself was immensely courageous. And for a woman who'd had a supposed nervous breakdown, she hid Jews in her flat in... Greece during the war and saw off the Gestapo by pretending to be deafer than she really was, which frankly is an act of enormous moral courage and one of the reasons why she's deemed to one of the righteous and is buried in the Mount of Olives. Now, late, later on, P Prince Philip took her into Buckingham Palace and, and you had two extraordinary matriarchs, the Queen Mother and uh, Prince Philip's mother living there. But he, he cannot have failed to have to deal with her orthodoxy and her piety and her experiences. And at some point he was going to, I think, to, to have to process the values of these different religious systems. In his library, which was extensive, uh, he, the, most, the thing he had most of was books on birds. There were five categories of interest he had. The second largest number of books he had was on religion and religious experience. He was very well read. So he, behind the scenes, he was doing a great deal of thinking. I think that emphasises just how much we've lost. Incidentally, I was friendly with an old French priest, died aged 97, I think, many years ago, called Father Jean-Marie Charroux, an aristocratic Rosminian. 
And um, Father Charroux claimed, and although he was a little bit given to elaboration, that he'd actually helped Princess Alice set up this order of nuns. I mean, how many other nuns were there? Do we know? No, I, 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 I don't know. I've been trying to get hold of a book to read about her because she's, she's taken my, caught my imagination and I'd like to know much more about it. But because one of the things that we know is that, that both Charles and Philip began to explore orthodoxy in the 90s and had a great deal to do with Mount Athos and, like anybody exposed to the monasticism of Mount Athos, came away profoundly impressed and affected. And I think one of the questions that they faced and that we too can find ourselves facing is a relationship between these the three major churches that surround us in Christian terms, Orthodoxy, Catholicism and Anglicanism, and the relationship between them and culture, because they, they give us three different models. Orthodoxy refuses point blank to give way to the passing of culture. It prides itself that its, its oldest liturgies are the best. Catholicism is in the middle of a fairly serious crisis and perhaps even the beginnings of a civil war once more, 500 years after the Reformation. And Anglicanism has decided that, uh, that the present culture is, is to be embraced wholeheartedly and to be followed w without much reservation. So all Christians, I think, in our present culture, and certainly the royal family, would have had to have given some thought to, the, to which of these three branches of Christianity they thought offered them the most serious platform to operate on. Obviously, Mount Athos exerts tremendous spiritual appeal for British Christians who are interested in orthodoxy. I remember Robert Runcie used to visit it frequently. I've always been rather allergic to the idea of going there because the monks have this reputation of being the most poisonously anti-Catholic Christians on the face of the earth, not accepting the late Dr Ian Paisley. There are, there are long Orthodox memories, um, particularly going back to the Fourth Crusade. I, I remember my father teaching me 20th century history and said, boy, he said, you need to put yourself in, in the shoes of the Russians. They constantly get invaded from the West. <laughs> and and they, they, haven't, they haven't fared well at the hands of Western invasion, whether it's Hitler and Napoleon or other enterprises. And I think one has to put oneself in the shoes of orthodoxy to say that, that Catholicism has not always been kind and the orthodox have long memories. Of course, the test of Christianity is that you, you learn to forgive. Uh, and so, be, uh, undoubtedly, uh, as a denomination, people have long memories. And the, the test of the human heart is whether or not you, you, you express this forgiveness. But it's certainly true that one of the challenges is, is to heal history and to build bridges over the failures of our forebears. But one of the gifts of, of orthodox monasticism is that it, it contains a, almost like a nuclear spirituality. I was, by mistake, sent to a Greek Orthodox monastery when I was at a theological training college, and I was absolutely astonished at, at the kind of Christianity I met there. And of course, would much have liked to have been Orthodox. Uh, it wasn't the right thing to do, but it's almost as if of these three branches of Christianity, each of them has something the others lack. And so if we can get over our historical resentments, we might find that we can discover charisms that, that deal with the imbalances that our own particular branch suffer from. Well, I've always thought that the ambition to heal the schism between East and West is an essentially unrealistic one. The fault line that runs between Western Europe, Protestant and Catholic, and all 
Orthodox Europe is profoundly important, and I think one of the basic mistakes the European Union made was crossing it. I think you were implying there that the Orthodox don't have a particularly highly developed sense of forgiveness. I remember talking to a friend of mine who knew very well Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, much-loved head of the Russian Orthodox Church in this country, and he met Pope John Paul II, and this friend of mine said, well, you know, how did the meeting go? And Metropolitan Anthony just brushed his shoulder as if getting rid of a bit of dust, a really contemptuous gesture. And this was referring to his meeting with the Pope, and I think that reminded me of just how enormous the gulf between Catholics and Orthodox is. You also said that the Orthodox have long memories. They preserve very carefully their ancient liturgies, which is not something that the Catholic Church has done, or the Church of England for that matter. So, for example, earlier I was talking about my surprise at seeing the Prince of Wales cross himself in the Orthodox manner. Well, he crossed himself in the modern Orthodox manner, which meant that his two fingers were joined to his thumb in a sort of point as he crossed himself from right to left, whereas Catholics cross themselves from left to right. But the pointing of the two fingers and the thumb together was one of the things that caused a horrific homicidal split in Russia between the Russian Orthodox Church as it was being reformed and the old believers who insisted on crossing themselves with just two fingers without the thumb joining in. And this had huge theological significance for them and the sign of the cross remained a sort of casus belli first centuries that still does there are still old believer communities for whom making the sign of the cross in the wrong way is an abhorrent act I'm sorry I'm fascinated by these little details it's not such a little detail though if you're an old believer and being put to death because of it which had which did happen I, I, I didn't intend to suggest that, that the Orthodox have difficulty forgiving. What I was trying to do was to, to say that where there are resentments, they're, they're well-founded in history. But um, you can either do a history of, of politics and violence and resentment, or you can do a, a history that has to do with the virtues of the graces and the charisms. One of the great virtues of Orthodoxy is that it's, pay, it's paid more attention to holiness than... Catholicism has. In other words, holiness in orthodoxy always arises from the bottom of the church up and the people recognize it and substantiate it and resonate with it. Whereas in the West, uh, holiness has to get through the bureaucratic examination of the hierarchy, which is there to save people from being misled by charlatanism, but nonetheless can, can come with a good deal of bureaucratic weight. I think the, the the problem with the church is it's, it's almost like you know the same way in which families have two different types of personality. Christianity has these two lungs, these two ways of being Christian, uh, and the more separated they are, the more unbalanced we are in each of them. What we want to be able to do is, even if we can't manage to reconcile the historical divisions ourselves, the intellectual, the theological, the divisions of memory. What we can do is to embrace the graces ourselves as part of our personal discipleship. And I don't mean in a form of a, a, eclectic superficiality, but there are emphases and graces in orthodoxy which any Christian can be refreshed by. 
as there are within Catholicism and to some extent also within Anglicanism, although the way in which Anglicanism has developed in its relationship between these two parent parts of the church has changed over the last two or three hundred years and is different now to what it was in the 17th, 18th or 19th century. Do you think it's fair to say that Anglicanism sometimes seems to want to legitimise itself by drawing closer to orthodoxy as opposed to Catholicism? Uh, we talked about the resentments that Orthodox have if you, with a certain reading of history in Europe against the Catholics. There is, of course, the same similar resentments between Anglicans and, and Catholics. I mean, I remember living ne near Lewis and I being absolutely horrified on November the 5th to see the, 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 the level of culturally preserved vicious hatred <laughs> against the Catholic Church that the November the 5th celebrations in Lewis embodied. So yes, Anglicanism developed as a rebuke to a moribund European Christianity. But the challenge on, for Anglicanism always was, well, if you don't like the mother church, you do it better. And I think the, the question one has to ask the Church of England over the last 500 years is, are you doing it better? One of the things that most profoundly affected me about 15 years ago, as I left the Synod of the Church of England with my diocesan bishop, after we'd had a, a debate where we had tried to make space for traditionalists as well as progressives and failed, it had been treated like a battle instead of a holy walking on the way together, a synod. And he said, we, tonight he said, we have just witnessed the end of a 500 year old ecumenical experiment that is the Church of England. And I think he was right on both counts. The, the Church of England has been an ecumenical experiment, trying to gather together different different elements of Christianity. And insofar as it was, it produced the best of all of these, it was a wonderful thing. If, however, it ever failed in that, then you have to ask what it is and what it has left. And in the judgment of my colleague that night, the end of the road had come. So I think the Church of England's integrity depends upon it being not better than, but it making up the lack of what the Catholic Church was supposed to have gone without. The trouble is, after 500 years on the Counter-Reformation, that's, that's quite a high bar to jump. So do you think that the Duke of Edinburgh, who, as you say, was extremely well-read on matters of religion, was conscious that orthodoxy offered something that the religion to which he converted, Anglicanism, Yes, he, I, I do think that. And we, we know that he was quite critical of Catholicism because I think he, he may have had, I wouldn't say Malthusian tendencies, but I mean, that's, that's, that's very unfair. And he, he ought to be here to defend himself rather than have me um, throw that in. But I, I think his, his experience of ecology and wildlife, the culling of animals, was that in order to, to manage our environment, there were moments when you had to cull and not have overpopulation. And I think probably he carried his sense of environmental balance into, into his theology, because we do know that he was quite cross with, with Catholicism choosing to make birth control uh, and the pill in particular a sin. So many of us get become single-issue people. You know, we, we see one flaw, one lacuna, and then we imagine that defines or shadows the whole of, of the religious experience. But it might be that getting stuck between Anglicanism and Catholicism as so many people do when they trip over a particular issue that triggers them so to speak uh, that orthodoxy then comes as a as a third way 
a way of bringing together everything you really wanted to and freeing you from the particular ideological baggage you got stuck with. That's one of the reasons why some people find it attractive as they, as they can't reconcile the civil war that we still have in the shadow of the Reformation. But just out of interest, what does orthodoxy teach on the subject of artificial birth control? David, I don't know. <laughs> well, I forgive you, Gavin, because quite often it's very difficult to answer these questions about precisely what orthodoxy teaches. There isn't the same, obviously, uniformity of belief and practice that you'd find in the Catholic Church. And quite often the mysticism of orthodoxy, not perhaps among the orthodox themselves, but among their Anglican sympathisers, is used as a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card. So I remember asking a bishop a complicated theological question, and he would say, well, as the orthodox say, we're all on the edge of unknowing. Although that actually may be a Catholic quote, but nonetheless he invoked an orthodox mysticism which dispensed you from tricky theological debates. I mean, as I think about it, one of the reasons why I don't know is that orthodoxy may not have a position on the grounds that it would go back to early and original conciliar decisions. Um, and the, the science and the chemistry wasn't around in those days for the church to have made an apostolic decision about. So it, it, may, it may be that orthodoxy will take a very long time before it produces a conciliar decision on the science of the, and the medical and ethics of the 20th century. But I think perhaps more important than just the single issue of birth control is how Christianity in the 20th century, surrounded by such very powerful cultural pressures, expresses itself and whether or not the Anglican model of embracing it and presumably to convert it, but that, that's, a, that's a presumption I think needs to be explored, or the Catholic one of finding some kind of compromise without losing too much of one's one's roots and moorings or the orthodox one which is to say that apostolic culture the first three to five centuries are non-negotiable and cultures and kingdoms and nations come and go but apostolic culture will remain apostolic culture and the closer you keep to Jesus and the apostles the more authentically Christian you are I have to say that, that, that in my, my own sense of of things in the period of very serious cultural turmoil is that the orthodox position is a very attractive one. But perhaps one of the things that might appeal to members of any royal family about orthodoxy is that because it doesn't have a pope, it's often developed a very close and sometimes unhealthy relationship with the ruling power, with the monarch, whom, well, in the case of the Russian Orthodox Church, it's canonised the last Tsar, also canonised Prince Philip's great aunt, I think I'm right mm. in saying. But nonetheless, there is this subservience to the temporal power, which used to be monarchs, and, and now there's this rather embarrassing subservience to Putin in Russia. It's the sort of thing with which you might expect members of a royal family to be quite comfortable. I think if you're a monarchist, it must be enormously appealing. And you're exactly right. One of Orthodox's greatest weaknesses is its over-identification with, with nationalism. And the problem the 20th century experience at the hands of some kinds of nationalism, that's a very serious weakness. And it's a great strength of Catholicism that it manages to be so wonderfully transnational as it embraces a wider Christendom. So we describe ways in which Orthodoxy is, has, has greater virtues in Catholicism and and, and vice versa, because the fact is most people don't really consider their 
Christian identity with this level of scrutiny because so much of it is influenced by what we've inherited, our families, our cultures, our communities. And I imagine that's as true of the royal family as anybody else. I think I should note in passing that Catholicism's transnational appeal is perhaps waning a little as the Pope seems happy to allow the German church at least for a time to turn itself Protestant. But I do find it curious that the Prince of Wales is drawn towards orthodoxy, if only because, according to so many sources, he and his father were not close, and his father was not a particular influence on him. I think the reasons... I mean, this is very presumptuous, isn't it? But the reasons why Charles and Philip would be drawn to orthodoxy would be different for both of them. For Philip, it would have to do something with his own roots and his own mother. And I think his appreciation of things that worked, and if you, one of the things that one comes away with from experiencing orthodox monasticism is it, it works. It's a very, very powerful expression of Christianity. Charles's attraction to it would be slightly different. He, he's more mystical and less practical, uh, more interested in spirituality. Um, he's, he's flirted with Islam for precisely those reasons. We might put it down to intellectual and aesthetic curiosity, quite rightly. But if you do have a mystical streak to you, it's not easy to feed it from the well of Anglicanism. I'd love to know what Prince Philip said when he first discovered that his eldest son was talking to plants. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, I'm not going there. <laughs> he was very forth. He had a very forthright way of expressing himself, didn't he? I think we should, perhaps, all this is very interesting. Gavin, but in the end, of course, what we're talking about is a much-loved figure who has just died at the age of 99. And I was listening to some of the things that his children have been saying, and I noticed, one couldn't fail to notice, the pain that they're experiencing at the moment. And it does no good at all, sometimes, to say, well, he was 99, because he still had his marbles, was still a very powerful personality who's been gently taken from us, but nonetheless taken from us. But it did remind me, given his great age, that sometimes we're a little bit casual about the death of very old people. I remember meeting a friend of mine who was grieving deeply for a great aunt I think he'd lost, to whom he'd been extremely close. And I sympathised, and then I said, how old was she? And he said, well, she was 102. But that's the problem, he said. Everybody laughs or just brushes it off because she was 102. As if I haven't lost anybody, I have. I understand what you're saying. And, of course, it's entirely true. The, the, the pain of losing one's parent is, is extremely deep. I, I had a, a student of mine who's now in her 40s phone me up and asked me to be with her father at his deathbed by Zoom. And after he died, we both wept. And one of the reasons I wept was because the death of my own father is still a matter of considerable pain to me from 2008. He was Prince Philip's age. So I don't diminish that at all. But those wounds do heal for people who are moderately psychologically functional. I think the problem actually lies the other way around. I think that in our society, we simply can't manage death at all well. And one of the great virtues of both Catholicism and Orthodoxy is that uh, is that it has a close relationship with the living dead. By that I mean the saints. There's a, a very profound sense that time and space are permeable within the love of God and that 
communication, whether you call it prayer or conversation, spans and takes and also pierces the biological catastrophe of death. In our society, so far from making use of that, we have turned death into a taboo. I, I said in a, on, I was given a platform on the BBC in the last couple of days, and I was being asked about the Queen, and I said, well, one of the things she'll be doing is preparing for her own death. And people have written me saying, how dare you talk about the Queen's death? What a, what, what a terrible thing to say. But the answer is she's 96, and all Christians ought to be preparing for our deaths. We ought to do it in our prayers every night. That's what it is to be on this journey. But our society, having given itself to, to hedonism and, and, and all the distractions of secularism, is terrified of death and has begun to develop all kinds of euphemisms for it, like passing and other terrible words. Yes, that awful, so, that awful phrase, passed away, which you never heard Catholics say when I was growing up, has now spread to the Catholic community, I'm sorry to say. I wasn't quite sure what to say. In fact, there was no need for me to say anything. But on Twitter, which is where I pointlessly live much of my life, after Prince Philip died, I was so upset. I just... And I don't want anybody having a go at me for being upset about it. I just was. And I tweeted out a lovely photograph of him. And then I said that it's a consolation to know that the Queen herself has such a powerful Christian faith that will help her cope with her bereavement. I agree. But I, I, also, I think permission to pray for the dead is a very important way of coping with our losing them. It's the awful fact that you can't care for them or talk to them. And being able to pray for... Um, and I'm using the word pray here in the in, in the proper English linguistic sense, as in, you know, praying is about communicating. It's not it's not restricted to worship. Prithee, dear brother, let me talk to you about something. It's not an act of idolatry, but but being able to have a living relationship with the living dead in Christ, so to speak, is a very important way of dealing with the awful pain of the fact that they're no longer tangibly sharing the same space that we can't touch them and kiss them anymore. That is absolutely, as you say, really horrible. But within the reservoir of Christian faith is a very powerful way of dealing with it indeed, which is to continue to have a living relationship with them within the love of God and within our, the notion of the communion of saints as we see it expressed in so many ways, but particularly the book of Revelation and the experience of the church down the ages. Gavin Ashton, once again, Thank you very much.